Hello and welcome to the At Sea Level podcast, brought to you by Intelligent Briefings, a Lynchpin Media brand. My name is Jess Phillips, Director of Strategic Content at Lynchpin Media, and this is the podcast where we speak to technology chiefs about how they're making waves in the industry, chatting to them about their career journey so far, their management style, and how they're planning for what's yet to come. Delighted to introduce today's guest to At Sea Level, Peter Jackson, Chief Data Officer at Exosol. Peter joined Exosol in March 2021 as Chief Data and Analytics Officer to help Exosol customers accelerate their innovation journey, bringing with him a wealth of experience in defining and implementing data strategies that are aligned to business needs. Peter is a data evangelist and co-author of two best-selling data books, The Chief Data Officer's Playbook and Data-Driven Business Transformation. Prior to Exosol, he was Director of Group Data Sciences at Legal & General, CDO for the LNG Investment Management Business, and CDO at Southern Water. So Peter, thank you, first of all, for joining us on At Sea Level. Pleasure. Nice to be with you. We're going to set the scene, first of all, for listeners. Can you give us an overview of what your typical day looks like in your role as Chief Data and Analytics Officer? and the kind of responsibilities that you have within your role? That's a very interesting question because I kind of have um, three parts to my role. Um, One is as Chief Data Analytics Officer, obviously I'm responsible for our own data and analytics within the organisation. Even though we're a software vendor and developer, we have our own customer data, we have our own HR data, we have our own finance data. So um, I have a a remit to make sure that we're looking after that properly, that we're meeting um, regulatory requirements with personal data, that we're reporting financial data correctly because we're a listed company and that kind of thing. So that's part of my role. And so my day will partly be filled up with some of that internal stuff, which I have a long career of doing in in many organisations. Another part of my day is taken up with um, evangelising for our software. And I am sort of the link between... Our product, which is developed by some very clever engineers within our organization, and the enterprise, in other words, who we sell it to. We're very good at selling the product. We can tell people what it is and why it's so fantastic and how it's been built. But what we need to actually do is to explain to our customers and prospects as to what they would use it for and why it would bring them business value and great outcomes for them, their shareholders, their customers, or society. So that's the second part of my day. And the third part of my day very much links to my life outside of uh, Exosol, where I'm the Chief Data Analytics Officer. And Exosol are, are very supportive of this. My role with my co-author, Caroline Carruthers, where we've, we've written three books together and we spend time evangelizing around data, producing thought leadership, talking at conferences, um, mentoring people, doing things like Chief Data Officer Summer Schools, which is a 12-week commitment through the summer. So my life is very much split into those three parts keeps it interesting oh yes very busy (laughs) well let's go back in time a little bit then tell us a little bit about your career journey today and some of the big moments that have led to where you are today very interesting somebody asked me um about six months ago as to what were the big moments in my career and I said they're kind of like what I call light bulb moments they were kind of that revelations to say oh wow that's what I ought to be doing because I left university many, many years ago um, and I was a, a business analyst. Um, I went into a career as business analyst. And then in the mid-90s, somebody said to me, this internet thing is going to be big. And I said, what internet thing? And of course, there was no Google to go and look it up in those days. So I had to do some standard research. And I realized actually the internet was going to be absolutely huge. And I thought, wow, there's a light bulb moment. And I thought, well, who, who builds things for the internet? 
And I thought, right, I'm going to teach myself basic coding language so I can be part of this new economy and this new technology. So I taught myself HTML and CSS, and then I finally taught myself SQL so I could put databases behind web pages. I was fortunate enough, whilst I'd been at university, to actually do some coding. I'd learned Fortran and bizarrely a bit of COBOL and done a lot of statistics. So I was fairly comfortable in that space. Um, and that's how I got into um, data, really, to begin with. And I became the COO of a software company. We were producing things like integrated CRM and CMS systems. And I then had another light bulb moment. And I thought, well, actually, you know what? These are becoming more commoditized. Salesforce had just arrived. There was Sugar. There was Microsoft Dynamics. I thought, these are just going to be commoditized. What is really the differentiator is how you use the data within those systems. So that was kind of my second light bulb moment. I thought, wow, actually, it's not the platform, the digital platform, it's the data, how you use the data. So then I started moving into consultancy around data strategies to how you would use the data in these platforms that organizations were buying and not using very well. And that was kind of around the advent of social media as well. And people saying, well, what do we do with all this information we're getting back from social media? And I was saying, well, we can use it this way and enrich your, your CRM data things like that. So that moved me into data. And then um, I was approached by the CEO of the pensions regulator to become their first head of data. Um, it's a risk-based regulator um, with automatic enrollment, workplace pensions, which you all have in the UK. Um, she realized that the only way to regulate that part of uh, the economy in pensions was through looking in the data, looking at HMRD, HMRC data, PAYE data, tax data to actually see where the risk was, to look for the patterns and the anomalies in the data so they could regulate in those spaces where the risk was. That was my first formal role as a leader in data. I then moved from there to Southern Water to be their chief data officer, the first chief data officer of any water company in the UK, because they realized that the regulators were regulating the water sector through data. The only way to increase shareholder value with regional monopoly with the price set by Offort is through operational efficiency. How do you do that? Well, you look in the data. And then finally, how do you delight your customers so they don't phone up and complain and then you get penalized by Offort for not looking after your customers? Data. So I was there for a number of years, um, landing a data strategy for them. And then I went to uh, Legal and General to be the Group Director of Data Science, um, which is a global remit across the whole of Legal and General, which was investment management, pensions, life insurance, uh, capital, uh, and general insurance at the time. And that was a really exciting role. Um, but I was also the Chief Data Officer of the Investment Management Business, which is, has £1.4 trillion of assets under management. So that was a, a nice, hefty role in its own right. And it was in that role... I was an Exasol customer and I realized actually the power of Exasol and what you could do with it. And I thought, well, now I want to carry on my evangelism journey. I want to actually go out to the world and say, do you really want to change the world in your organization using data? You need a technology like Exasol. And here it is. And I can explain how to use it. I've used it myself. So I'm almost a, you know, a proof point. But during that journey, um, as I mentioned earlier on, I met Caroline Carruthers and have published three books, The Chief Data Officer's Playbook and Data-Driven Business Transformation. And I've been lucky enough to actually go around the world talking about those books and the content within them. So my career started as a business analyst and ended up as a chief data officer. You've seen the impact of data, haven't you, like from both sides, I guess. Yeah, I've been, I've been very fortunate to do what I do at a time whilst data was becoming a thing that everybody 
wanted to get into but being very interested. If I go back 20 years, if I went to a dinner party and people say, what did Peter do? And they say, oh, he's in IT. Nobody would want to talk to me. They put me over there with the estate agent. Nobody wants to talk to you. If I go to a dinner party now and people say, well, Peter's in data, everybody wants to know about it. Everybody wants to know what Facebook is doing, what Google is doing, about autonomous cars, about mm-hmm. what their organisation isn't doing with data. Yeah. Everybody wants to talk about it. You can't get away from it, can you? That's actually an interesting point, looking back on a dinner party 20 years ago and how that would be different to today. One of the questions that we ask guests on the podcast usually requires a little bit of imagination, but I think I think we're already there with you. So imagine <laughs> we've somehow invented a time machine and we've taken a trip down memory lane and you come face to face with a 16-year-old version of yourself. What would you tell that person about the journey they're about to take in their career and some of the key differences in how the world will change or look different between then and now? And what advice would you offer to him? I think the, in retrospect, and I've been very fortunate to follow this advice almost inadvertently without realising. And, and I, may, I give this advice to my kids or anybody younger that I'm mentoring is do what you enjoy and do what you're good at. Don't try and force your, your round peg into a square hole because it won't work. You'll get frustrated, you'll, you know, you get bored, you'll give up. So my advice to my younger self is, yeah, do what you're good at and do what you enjoy. Um, I think the other thing I would say is, is if I could have realised perhaps earlier on that it was more about the data and I'd followed more of a statistical path rather than getting almost sidetracked into, for a couple of decades, into digital building platforms, that might have been an interesting journey. But to be honest... At that time, I had to talk about digital strategies rather than data strategy. People weren't there yet with data. Yeah, it's been a journey. So I think my advice very much uh, is, is do what you're good at and do what you enjoy. It's important. That actually brings us to the second section of the podcast, which is called The Chief. And it's where we find out about your management style. But what would be your advice on the best approach for communicating your area of expertise with the wider C-suite? Well, one of the things we talk about um, sort of in the network of chief data officers is, is the fact we have to be really good storytellers. Because if we to walk into, uh, you know, into the exec committee or into the exec board and start to talk about machine learning and boosted random forests and, and you know, algorithms and you know, training sets and things like that, a lot of our exec colleagues would just glaze over and have no interest. Um, so we have to get our story right. And the ability to tell the story around what the data strategy is going to deliver, what the vision is, what the business outcomes are going to be. In other words, to put the data strategy into terms that they will listen to and understand and will impact their areas of responsibilities is one of the the key things. So in talking to to my C-suite peers, storytelling is absolutely crucial. If they want to get specific, they want to understand how you're doing it, then being able to go into the depth and prove that you're a subject matter expert is really important. If I'm having that conversation with a chief investment officer in investment management, I have to be as good as my game as she is at her game. At the same time, we both have to tell each other stories. Um, In terms of managing my team, I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I give to myself is never be frightened of employing people better than you. Um, And then giving them the freedom to be brilliant. Um, and, and my management style is very much around, right, this is the journey we're going on and this is my vision. It's up to you to get us there. And I'll just provide the guide rails. If you're veering too much off to one side or the other, I'll just say, no, actually we're going in this direction. But you know, these are clever people. They're going to get you there. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier 
how crucial data is for finding operational efficiencies for improving customer experience, employee experience. So it's going to be a role that just grows and grows as we as we become more of a data-driven economy. What are the qualities that are needed for someone that might be looking to go into this area and they, they have the ambition to become a, a chief data officer? Caroline and I, actually, in the first book, identified a number of secret ingredients for a chief data officer. So I think I can answer my, your question from <laughs> there. Um, and one of those is you, you've, you've got to be technically credible. You actually have to understand you know, data and and ways of handling data, managing it, governing. You don't necessarily have to be an absolute expert in those things, but you have to understand that they exist and that there are people who are experts and you'll need them in your team. So having um, credibility is really important. Being able to tell that story is is another skill. Um, Being able to build relationships, because I think as you just said there, Jess, that the CDO is playing in lots of different parts of the business. They'll be playing in operations in HR, and even in recruitment, uh, making sure that we're getting the right data from recruitment, so recruiting the right people into the right places and, and meeting demand in recruitment, but finance all over the place. So the CDO has to be able to build those relationships with people. Um, you also have to be able to balance tactical with strategy because you'll be wanting to deliver a data strategy that has a big vision at some point in the future, but there are burning issues and you'll have stakeholders who want things done today or certainly tomorrow. And so you have to be able to balance those tactical things with the strategic things. Um, you have to be able to build a really good team because very often the chief data officer is building a new capability with an organization. So you have to understand what skills and sorts of people you need and where they fit in the operating uh, model of the whole organization. And then probably finally one thing is, is resilience. You have to be resilient. Um, because you know we are often talking about the art of the possible. Where um, a colleague of mine once described it, put it like we're describing a new colour to to the organisation and that they've not seen before, and they might not believe you, or they might think you're talking nonsense, or they might say, "Yeah, I get it," and then two days you realise actually they haven't got it, and so you have to be resilient. And, and chief data officers are changing the way that organisations change. And that's quite a painful thing for an organization. So resilience uh, is something that's important. And I think one final thing we identified was luck. You have to be lucky. You have to actually be lucky that you're in the right organization with the right people at the right time to actually deliver that vision. Good advice. Very good advice. It sounds like a very, well, a hugely beneficial and rewarding role to those that are in it. But there are, of course, some challenges, which you just highlighted. Outside of work, how do you how do you unwind and relax to sort of balance those challenges of the job? Um, well, uh, I go to the gym as many times a week as I can. I go early in the morning. I can't cope with it lunchtime or evening. So I go in the morning. I've been there this morning. So that clears my head for the day. Um, that's definitely one way I wind down. Um, I think another way is I have a, a small chocolate bound poodle. And I'm looking around for her at the moment. She's not around. Oh, no. and, and that's fun. <laughs> um, very soothing. It's always good to have a dog to stroke. It calms you down. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm trying to um, uh, get the message across personally for my partner as well. So we'll get there. Well, if, if you met our little poodle, there would be no argument at all. Uh, <laughs> every... <laughs> and I love doing things outside. Uh, you know, I like getting out on the water, swimming in the sea. I live in Brighton. So I'm very lucky. So, yeah. But I do try to put it down. I try to put work down and step away from it. I think it's important. And I think that's one thing we've all found hard in in lockdown is getting that separation between 
home and work. You know, you step straight out of your what is now your home office, straight into the living room or straight into the kitchen. And that's hard. It is. Yeah, it can be difficult, can't it? Are you based at home for the foreseeable or, or is it going back in a couple of days a week or not quite sure? Um, by the nature of my job, um, I'm not often office-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, my head office is in Germany anyway. Um, right. So I've been, I've been into the head office in Germany a few times, but uh, I work predominantly from home. But this week I've got two days in London at conferences and seeing partners Um and then next week, I've got another two-day conferences. And then a week after that, I'm in New York for the week. So um, not really office space. Um, yeah. I do it now, now that we're out and about a bit more, I do enjoy more working from home. It's actually nice to sit down at your desk at home and say, right, I've got a day here to do stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You can pull the benefits out a little bit yeah. more easily, can't you, when you are kind of rushed off your feet every now and then. <laughs> the... Um, this next section of the podcast is called Getting Down to Business. And so it's where we look at how you're planning your future strategy. So what are some of the key goals for you in your role in the, the next 12 months? A key piece for Exosol, and therefore for me, is that Exosol did an IPO. They, they listed on the Frankfurt stock market just over a year ago. Uh, and the investors and the investment community obviously believe in the technology because it was a very good flotation. We've now got to um, deliver on that. Um, going to market is, is our biggest focus. And coming back to my story, uh, helping people understand what Exosol could do for their business and therefore could do for their shareholders or their owners or their customers. And that is, that's one of my biggest focuses to help with the whole of the organizations go to market and how I can do that. So speaking at a lot of conferences as an evangelist, speaking at a lot of conferences, explaining what Exosol does and how it impacts business, as well as standing out there as a leader and saying, you should listen to me talking about the bridge that gap, uh, is, is a focus for me. In terms of more widely, I think there's that constant piece around thought leadership in data. I mean, it is still something that, that people need to understand, both individuals, citizens. We need to understand what organizations are doing with our data and how they're managing it or mismanaging it. But I think also uh, helping other organizations realize that they can strive to be better, whether in climate challenge or whether in dealing with supply chain logistic problems or whatever, the answer's in the data. Well, going back to the climate change piece that you mentioned, your recent research found that 82% of British consumers had decided not to purchase something from a brand because it didn't do enough or wasn't doing enough um, from a climate change perspective. And we know climate change is top of mind for many right now in light of COP26. How can businesses do more to not only respond to these customer demands for change, but also to actually make a real difference? I think the first thing is that businesses have got to realise that consumers are now becoming aware of these things and that, you know, um, that they will make powerful decisions, either as individuals or as groups, as to where they will spend their hard-earned pounds, dollars or euros. So I think that's the first thing. Businesses need to become aware of it. Um, through my time in leaving general investment management, I became very involved with what is called ESG data, environmental, social and governance data, which all listed companies have to provide. And it is a measure of their carbon footprint or their environmental impact in their supply chain and performance, their social data around, in other words, how they impact society. And their governance data is to diversity and gender diversity in their senior leadership team and the management teams and even uh, exec teams. So I've been aware that um, investment managers, banks 
are drawing this data to actually build what might be called ethical portfolios or, or green portfolios. And I think that that's important. I think that for individual organizations, and Exasol is one of those as listed companies, company, we need to make sure that what we report as our ESG data into the markets is accurate and that we actually uh, are invested in that ESG data and realise why it's not only important to us and our share price, but why it's important to society and consumers as well. So I think that taking ESG data is very important. And then I almost come back around to the consumer. Understand that there is this thing called ESG data. And think about your pension investments. Think about your life insurance investments. Think about you know, all of the places that you're spending and putting your money and perhaps guide those investments based upon the metrics and the data that is there to help you. Good advice. I think some people won't even be aware um, yeah. <laughs> that that's the case. In your, in your role, I imagine that you speak with end users and organisations that you think can benefit from the services that Exosol um, offers. What are some of the key pain points that um, organizations are experiencing when it comes to putting together and then actually implementing their data strategies? And how, how do you advise them to address these challenges? Well, there's two, I think there's two, no, there's probably three big challenges that organizations are facing. I'll come to the third one a bit later on because it's not really technology related. But the, the first is that the organizations are struggling to get hold of their data. I mean, they've got data, but it tends to be locked up in transactional or operational systems. In other words, things were built to, to run a business, but they weren't necessarily built for analytics. So somehow the organization, this new data team, this new capability has to get the data away from operational systems into a space or a technology where they can do advanced analytics or machine learning or build artificial intelligence. And that's that first challenge because IT teams have traditionally looked after that data, or rather looked after those systems, getting them to understand that the data needs to be democratized from there and brought to the business so they can use it to make decisions and predict what's going to happen with the business. That is a big challenge. It's not only a big challenge as a piece of culture, it's a big challenge from a piece of technology because you know, mainframes weren't built for analytics or you know, often data lakes have been built not really understanding what analytics they're going to need to be doing. So there are, you know, that's a culture and the technology piece. Um, and Exasol can sit in there as a solution to that. You can move your data to Exasol and then you can do your, your analytics. Um, the other piece is around, and I'm sure you're aware, the, the volume of data has mushroomed in, in the last 20 minutes, and never mind the last five years. And data sets are getting bigger and bigger, and organizations have the ability to collect and use more and more data. And I think that a lot of organizations are now realizing that what they had for their analytics is now grinding to a halt. What might have five years ago, a piece of analytics might have taken 20 minutes to run, now might take two days because the database just cannot cope with the number of computations it's got to make on the size of the data it's got. And that's where Exasol can fit in. It is the world's fastest database. It's in an in-memory database. And so we often compete with uh, or go into organizations where they're faced with that position. They're waiting two or three days for a piece of analytics to come back, a piece of insights. They can make a decision. Exercise might do it in 12 and a half minutes. That is a game changer. That is a game changer because something I have seen certainly over the 18 months, and it's been driven by the pandemic, organizations want to use more data and they want to use good data, and they want to make more decisions more quickly. 
But you can't do that with some of these legacy technologies. You need a technology like Exasol that has you know, amazing performance to compute. It is. <laughs> the last piece was, yes. was data literacy. I yeah. think that's a massive challenge for organizations. Now, um, a lot of organizations aren't truly data literate. They might be numerate, but they aren't necessarily data literate and understand that there is a thing called data governance and data management, data catalogs and data lineage. And it, there are certain new data tools that you can use. And so I think raising the data literacy of an organization is a big challenge that, that many are facing. Thank you. It's great insight, actually. That actually brings us to the final section of the podcast, which I warned you about earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you'll be perfect at it. It's called Against the Clock. So you'll have roughly two minutes in Against the Clock where you can speak uninterrupted on your area of expertise. So the main thing to bear in mind is what one piece of advice you'd like to share with other C-level executives or a lesson that you'd like to pass on. So when you're ready, I will hand over to you. Okay, thank you very much, Jess. A CDO is building teams, is building new capabilities within organisations. And I think the temptation with the C-suite and perhaps for a CDO is to think that you're going to need people who are very technically gifted. In other words, people who are good at writing Python and are, are, are skilled with mathematics, advanced mathematics, physics, logic, that kind of thing. Um, and so there's been a very much a focus and government policy has driven down this way into what we call the STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering and maths. Now, I think that we are in danger of overlooking the arts and the liberal arts subjects and the importance of those to data. Because if you think about what I was talking about earlier on about storytelling, it's very well, it's all very well to produce an algorithm, a decision making algorithm that's going to decide A or B. But if you can't describe the story around that as to how the algorithm is doing that, and what the importance of A or B is, or where you've got the training data sets from, why they are biased or unbiased. If you can't tell the story around those, your algorithm won't get used or it won't be trusted. And so having people have that ability to tell a story, and that may well be people who've got liberal arts backgrounds or art backgrounds or sociology or political science or philosophy, is really important. And I think they bring an awful lot more than just the storytelling. They are the people who are curious and creative and they can say, why? Or what are we going to do next? Or what does that mean? And I think having the the arts, the A, in STEM, so we're recruiting STEAM and building balanced teams of, of science and arts is really important. You take that a step further, What are we trying to do with data science? We're trying to impact and change behaviours, whether it's consumer behaviour, employee behaviour, shareholder behaviour, policymakers' behaviour. That's what we're trying to do with data science. We're trying to change behaviours. So therefore, you do need people who understand behavioural science. In other words, it's all very well understanding do A and not B. How do you get the organisation to do A and not B when they've got decades of being used to doing B or perhaps even C? So... I think my my message for my fellow C-suite to take away is don't just focus on the STEM subjects. Think about building balanced teams that bring in the arts, liberal arts, sociology, philosophy. And something I'm I'm often talking about is the best data scientist I've ever worked with in one of my teams was a guy who had a first-class degree in philosophy from Warwick University. And why was he so good? Well, he was smart enough to pick up R and Python. So that, that wasn't a problem. But he was so curious. He was always asking why or what are we missing? What aren't we thinking of? 
He was always thinking, is there a pattern in that data or is it the anomalies I should be thinking about? It was that creativity that actually provided real value to the business. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. Thank it's been you. really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I hope you have a good few weeks of travels. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you uh, for giving me this opportunity to talk to you today. That brings us to the end of this edition of At Sea Level. To our guest, Peter Jackson, Chief Data and Analytics Officer at Exasol. Thank you so much for joining us. And to our listeners, thanks once again for tuning in. And we'll be back very soon with the latest instalment.